Power of the Fed. That is the title of a documentary done by Frontline, a public service, public broadcasting service uh, news magazine. Is that how you you would describe it, Jeff? I it's think a, so. They do great documentaries, great, interesting kind of in-depth analysis that you don't see on other news channels. And they did it. They did a review of the last 14 years or so of what the Federal Reserve has been doing, especially recently, and what it might mean for stocks, inequality, shadow banks. We're going to talk about it all. I am going to read the transcript out, not verbatim, not the whole thing, but interesting parts to Jeff to get his feedback in and and to rile them up to be honest okay here we go so it was produced by james jacoby anya borg and megan robertson here's the subject when covid 19 struck the federal reserve stepped in to try to avert an economic crisis as the country's central bank continues to pump billions of dollars into the financial system daily who is benefiting and at what cost do we have to stop right here i mean because we talked about this on the anniversary of quantitative easing, the 20th anniversary going back to the Bank of Japan, how it's all QE is always described as pumping billions or trillions of dollars into the financial system or into the real economy, yet there's never any evidence that actually takes place. And in fact, the statement itself is false, and it's provably false. Here comes James Jacoby, the producer, and he's going to be narrating the this presentation here. So... As the financial world had been diverging from the real world, I've been trying to understand the many forces at play, and I found one institution has been at the center of it all, the Federal Reserve, the nation's central bank. Now we go to Dion Raboon, who is the markets editor of Axios for uh, several years here recently. It is the most powerful and least understood institution in the country, and it really is difficult to overstate how important this story is and how big this story is and how much it matters. Howard no, Marks. Just, I mean, let, let's, let's, I mean, yeah, no, listen, to the in, in. listen to the inconsistency of what he said. It's the most powerful yet misunderstood. So... Do you already see the problem here? How I see can potential we know for it's powerful if we don't even know what the hell the thing does? Yeah, and that's you know, and that's the that's the intellectual space that modern central banks that aren't central banks occupy. They use mysticism and that kind of misdirection to create the image that they're all powerful, and it works as long as people believe this. If people believe that the Fed is all powerful and we don't, oh, I don't need to know what it does. I just it does what it does. It screws around the federal funds rate, a market that doesn't matter, and voila, magic, right? We're, we're supposed to believe that. But yet a truly powerful organization would be completely transparent and say, you don't, don't mess with me. I'll show you what I'm going to do. Instead, it's, it's you don't mess with the Fed because, I don't know, <laughs> because everybody says so. Because so, that's a bumper sticker slogan. Exactly. But that's, you know, already from the very beginning, this inconsistency, this, this, this really galling, driving inconsistency where the Fed is so powerful, but we have no idea what it actually does. Well, and that's what Howard Marks said. Howard Marks, co-chairman Oak Tree Capital Management. Nobody knows how this is going to turn out. This is an experiment. Back to Jacoby. 
I've heard that over and over, that we're living through an epic experiment run by the Fed, an experiment that has been dramatically changing the American economy. If you want to understand how today's financial world has grown so far removed from the real world and the role of the Federal Reserve, you need to go back to 2008, when investors, speculators, and Wall Street bankers nearly brought down the global economy. The new president and Congress spent hundreds of billions of dollars to restart the economy, but at the center of the rescue effort was the Federal Reserve. Richard Fisher was the head of the Fed Bank in Dallas at the time. Here he the guy goes. doesn't even know how bank reserves work. Let's Here. quote Richard Fisher. He actually belongs in the category that believes the Fed's powerful but has no idea what it actually does. <laughs> Here's what he said, Mr. Fisher. Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas 2005 to 2015. What the Federal Reserve does is provide the blood supply for the body of our capitalist economy. Oh, and what happened in 2008 is all the veins and capillaries and the arteries collapsed. So every financial function had failed. It had collapsed and we had to restore them. No, he was right about the first part, but exactly wrong about the last part. But that's that's sort of I disagree. Sort of the narrative, right? The narrative is, well, a bunch of evil speculators crashed the system and heroic Ben Bernanke and his group stepped in at the last minute and saved us from becoming 1929. That's kind of what Fisher's saying. And that's kind of the narrative that's been set up is that, yeah, it was a bunch of evil speculators, subprime mortgages, blah, blah, blah. Fed saves the world. Ben Bernanke's a hero because we saved a bunch of jobs that, that would have been lost if we didn't step in. But even... Even looking back at it, just the first financial crisis, um, you know, trouble started in 2006. The Eurodollar futures curve inverted, which said big trouble's coming. And what did Ben Bernanke do? I don't see any trouble. Nothing. We're, we're perfectly fine. Fast forward to February, more trouble on the horizon. We start to see hedge funds started to fail. We're seeing the edges of the crisis come into view. Markets are saying, it's not evil speculators here. There's a systemic issue that's wrong. There's a monetary issue that's wrong. And what did, what did Ben Bernanke do? He went in front of Congress and said subprimes contained as if subprime was the problem. Fast forward a few more months, August of 2007. What was the quote from uh, the CEO of Northern Rock where he said, the, the whole world, world just stopped? Froze, yeah. That's the whole right. world just froze On in August. August 9th. The where the hell was the Fed? Right. Because that's what a central bank is supposed to do. Step in and make sure this thing doesn't happen. August 9th, 2007. So from that point forward, we've already had about a year of warnings that were ignored. Then we have another year of increasing crisis that led to Bear Stearns, one of the oldest businesses in Wall Street. And they were Bear Stearns was not some, you know, countrywide. They were not some kind of irresponsible AIG. Bear Stearns was actually doing real legitimate things that got caught up in a collateral shortage. One of the, one of the uh, you know, veins or arteries that Richard Fisher wouldn't even know is there, that's what collapsed Bear Stearns. So from August of 2007, we get through Bear Stearns, that's, that's, a, that's a chunk of time there where the Fed didn't do anything effective. And then we get the summer of 2008 or the spring of 2008 where the Fed says, that's it, we did a great job. Great job, everybody, let's pat ourselves on the back. And then the worst happens. <laughs> So as they think the crisis is over, we, we successfully rescued Bear Stearns. Look at a great job we've done, even though all these markets continue to say there's more coming. The Fed does nothing until it becomes so obvious it's the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. 
How yeah. is this the Fed doing a good job rescuing the system? And by the way, that was September and October 2008 as everything melted down. The Fed, Ben Bernanke, whatever they try. It, again, everybody needs to read the transcripts because you can realize from reading the transcripts of those peri that period, these people have no clue. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, just look at IOER, IOER for example. Uh, there's so many things I could just continue with here. It's okay, September, October 2008, the, we got a you know, global financial crisis. Then you've got another six months of it till March of 2009. So they, throwed, they threw everything they possibly could at the wall. Nothing worked. And then all of a sudden, March 2009, we're supposed to go, oh, good job, Ben Bernanke. You did great saving the world. How did the crisis end in March 2009 when QE was, was announced in December of 2008? You know, it's, it's, the Fed didn't even have a role in ending the crisis. That was mark to market, not the Fed. So even in 2008, the entire story is wrong, and it's easily discernible if you actually take a look at what happened. You can't go from Eurodollar futures curve inversion in late 2006 and say, oh, subprime mortgages and speculators, to a period almost two, you know, two and a half years later and say the Fed comes out of that as smelling good. No, I mean, the Fed failed one thing after another, after another, after another. As the crisis only got worse, the Fed started doing more and more things. This is not a, this is not a, a, a experiment that we're going to look back and say this is a great job by the central bank and you know monetary technocrats. This, this is them not knowing the system and having to apply uncertain and untested methods because they don't know what the frick they're doing. Yeah, I guess it does come off a little bit as if like uh, the crisis jumped out of a dark alley and said boo, and then the Fed reacted. Where no, it was you could see the storm no, and Emil, coming. No, I think that's I think that's the pop. I think that's what most people believe about 2000, especially as two thousand. I mean, we're and it's thirteen years ago. It's been it's been it's not as fresh in people's memory as it used to be. And when you start to think, you know, you move forward in time, you look back, even at, at some, you know, these these very stark events, you kind of condense everything into small little nuggets. And I think over time that that's as much as that was maybe you know people were skeptical closer to the crisis and it happening. Nowadays, I think most people actually believe it. They think evil Wall Street, bad speculation, subprime mortgages, uh, something about QE toward the end of it. Maybe that's what maybe that's what saved us. Maybe it didn't, but it sounds plausible. And that's really that's really I think the common popular perception is that it did. It jumped out of nowhere. The Fed was forced to respond. But if you and again, I urge people go back and think about this and put it together on a timeline and there's no way the fed comes out of that smelling clean because it it, it was so ineffective inept and really read the transcript these people are totally clueless and it's right from the beginning through to the end they had no idea what's happening they had no idea the costs that were involved they had no idea the the, the even the motive functions i mean we, we talked about the lehman emails remember those the confidential emails uh, where it was vice chairman, I think, I can't remember who the email yeah, was from, yeah, who said that. in the summer of 2008, it was, they were warned, yeah. Lehman Brothers is dead. It's not going to survive. In this, you know, I think it was July 2000, confidential mm -hmm. email. Mm -hmm. And they were even told how and why this would be. And yet, when the time came, they were totally unprepared for it because they don't understand all the modes of failure because they don't really understand how the monetary system works. It's a central banking complaint because right exactly as that email was being presented, 
uh, the ECB was raising rates. Raising rates, exactly. You know, July things, 2008, the, ECB is saying, hey, the Fed's done a lot. They've rescued the system. We're going to raise rates because we're going back into an inflationary boom. July 2008. These people have no idea. But yet, because, the, because all this stuff is so complicated and because the system is so different than you taught in the, in the textbooks, you're left to think, well, what else could it be? It sounds like this is a plausible explanation. I know. Well, that's what the Fed was asking itself. What more can we do? And James Jacoby continues, with Americans still suffering and the banking system on the verge of collapse, Fed officials there at the time told me they felt compelled to go even further. Back to Mr. Fisher. And then the question was, what else can we do? And the committee came up with the idea of quantitative easing. Oh, man. No. You- I mean, come on. This, this is just demonstrably false here, right? First of all, it wasn't the banking system that was on the verge of collapse. It would collapse. It was the monetary system. That's a, that's not a trivial distinction, is it? Because the central bank is supposed to, in, in our minds, what is the central bank central bank's first job? Provide uh, liquidity at penalty rates monetary, to good banks. Right, money supply, elasticity, hmm. not banking system and make sure Citigroup gets bailed out. That's that's some something different entirely. So I mean, we're already. You can already see we're moving into some other area, but untested, untried quantitative easing. Are we really trying to, again, demonstrably false? And there's all sorts of evidence and testimony and public transcripts that are available that the Fed knew the Japanese had used quantitative easing seven years earlier, and they knew it didn't work. They let me repeat that. They knew it didn't work. They talked about it repeatedly. There are any number of studies produced by the Fed, as well as the Bank of Japan, that said, it doesn't work, and therefore, it wasn't some untested experiment that the Fed was driving, you know, flying blind at a, as the banking system experienced its own internal failure. It was a monetary shortage that the Fed should have taken care of, and then they, the only reason they had to escalate their responses to it was because they were so inept and ineffective in their own responses. It only kept getting worse to the to the point that by December of two thousand eight, they were left with quantitative easing or nothing else because we don't really have any other ideas even and the reason we... they don't have any other ideas because they don't know what the hell they're doing number one but number two they're like well the japanese got it wrong maybe we'll get it right and that's not quite the same message they're trying to send here james jacoby qe was an experimental way for the fed to inject money into the financial system and lower long-term interest rates the way they and did it is we talk that didn't happen either. I mean, these things are all demonstrably false. Interest rates rose. Interest rates rose after Long-term QE was months. announced. Yes. It's, despite the Fed buying all those bonds, interest rates rose because at the time, for a couple months, the bond market said maybe this could work. Well, I think it was more about the fact that mark to market had ended everything and that the crisis seemed to settle down. But either way, you know, the timing of it, the fact that the interest rates rose, again, it's, they've got the demonstrably false here, demonstrably false. The way they did it was to literally create new money and nope. use it to buy huge amounts of things like mortgage-backed securities and government debt from banks and other institutions. Their hope was that the lower rates would spark more spending borrowing throughout the economy. Mr. Fisher. Already we're at the interest rate fallacy, right? Because it's history again, again, demonstrably. Do these people not do their research and homework? 
It's demonstrably false. When rates go down, bad things, tight money, central banks failing. When rates go up, it's central banks failing, but in the opposite direction. Then they're, they're printing too much money. You know, the idea that bank reserves are based money. okay, I understand why people believe that, but where's the evidence for it? The evidence has shown ever since Japan, Wikipedia. 20 years, right? The evidence is concluded. You don't need to take my word for it. Take the central bank's word for it. all of them. They all say the same thing. Number one, this does not pump any money anywhere. It, it's an asset swap that goes into bank reserves, stay in the interbank markets. So it's, it's not money going anywhere other than the interbank market. And it's not really money. It's just an asset swap. Because from the perspective of the central bank or the commercial banking system, they've traded one asset for another. It's not money. It's an asset. So, but again, I, you know, you understand why these myths per persist because going back to what we said at the very beginning, there's this intellectual space between Fed is so powerful, but we don't know what it does. Therefore, because we believe it's so powerful, we're told to believe it's so powerful and everybody says it is. We're never going to critically examine any of these things. We're just going to take everything they say at face value and just assume that these things are working out the way they should, even though every last bit of evidence shows conclusively none of this stuff works the way it's supposed to. I mean, jobs saved, for, first of all, but you know, even quantitative easing, central banks have to say, well, it works because it, well, it lowers term premiums. I mean, it's, it's, it's so reducing the standards to the point of meaninglessness because none of these things are what people think they are. And here was the good opportunity by Frontline because it seemed like they honestly wanted to go into this stuff. Yeah. But it, maybe they didn't know how. Maybe they didn't know the right questions to ask. Maybe they didn't know the right people to talk to to say, what is quantitative? I mean, the Japanese did this. Should we talk to some people in Japan? Maybe we should read some studies about the studies the Bank of Japan wrote about quantitative easing, about what this stuff actually is. But, you know, it's much easier. And, you know, editorial standards being what they are, we're left taking the word of central bankers themselves to essentially tell you how they did. Mr. Fisher continues, it's almost like alchemy. You can create money out of thin air if you're at the central bank. So creating more money puts more money in the banking system, put more money out there for the economy to take it and put to work and grow to restore itself. Now we turn to Andrew Hushar, former Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Here he is. The idea was that the Fed was trying to get more credit and cheaper credit into the hands of the average American. There were millions of people losing their jobs, millions of people in mortgages that they couldn't afford. And how could the Fed use its financial tools to actually help the average American? Jacoby, is this Wait something? Minute, but the, the average American, before, let's, let's address that one. The average American probably believes that they were successful. I mean, if they think he was successful and the Fed saved the world, they probably think there's more credit in the system. But as we've endeavored, again, demonstrably false, as we've endeavored to show people, 2007, 2008, there's about the, there's more credit in the system, but the rate of change changed so dramatic, so dramatically and so drastically, you, the only, you can't say that QE worked. It's the exact opposite. The, the system, the global system, but even the U.S. system has been utterly starved of credit. And that's something people are talking about today, by the way. How is it that lending has dropped ever since QE began last year, this heightened level of QE, but yet we keep continuing to see lending fall? So what that guy from FRBNY said was true in theory. 
if you believe this stuff works, the end result should be more credit and then therefore economic growth. But again, evidence, less credit, what does that tell us? Well, I mean, it doesn't necessarily tell us the Fed failed, but it, it sure as hell tells us the Fed didn't succeed in the way that it was saying. Well, again, here's another opportunity to discover how things have actually gone and therefore start taking things apart and saying, well, it was supposed to lead to more credit and growth, but we don't have the growth nor the credit. So that makes sense. Why didn't we have the credit and growth? Because we believe QE was successful. So something, I mean, something's missing here. I love it, Jeff. I'm, don't. Uh, okay, let's see. Jacoby's asking now, is this something that had ever been attempted before? Hushar, no. You have to realize that we were in the midst <laughs> All right, of shut the... it down. I mean, come on. That, I mean, shut it down. I mean, at this point, where are the editors for this show? Right? This front line is supposed to be a... a and it is. It's a respectable no, documentary. How did nobody not know to say... I'm sorry, this is just a flat out lie. Japan. We know that quantitative easing had been tried in a major economy by a major central bank, according to um, conversations and consultations with other central bankers. It wasn't the Bank of Japan just said, we'll do this on our own. They came up with this. I mean, they consulted with Paul Krugman. Milton Friedman had his, in, in, uh, had his, his input as well. They talked with, they definitely talked with people from the Federal Reserve. They used they big they didn't just conjure QE out of their own Japanese thin air. So for somebody to after the after the global financial crisis to say this is something we just did on our own, the Fed came up with QE. I mean, it's now I'm starting to wonder if this is a legitimate line of inquiry here, or, or this is this part of the uh, you know hey we need to do we didn't we need to just reinforce the mainstream message. Because I'm sure this was discussed at the BIS as well. Those meeting minutes are not Abs kept. Yeah, absolutely. But it would be impossible to imagine that they didn't, since that's a forum where they discuss these sort of things. So I'm sure. But like I said, you know, they broadly... talked about Japanese. It wasn't like it wasn't like that. The, not only were the Fed not involved in con consulting with the Japanese back when QE was begun in, in, in 2001, but it wasn't like the, the Japanese did this in secret. Oh, we'll just we'll hide our QE and nobody will know. I mean, it wasn't like people at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or at the Federal Reserve anywhere was unaware that, that the Japanese had done QE in 2001 and had done a QE2 the next year. I mean, these and, and that kept on. And not only that, Japanese QE was ongoing until 2006. And they talked about it endlessly. So it wasn't like they weren't aware of these things. For them to say that we're doing this monetary experiment out of thin air, this is our own great idea. It's uh, it's we're we're past just misinterpreting evidence into being disingenuous and outright lying. Uh, for the audience, Jeff's count is the most recent count that Japan is on QE twenty five. So yes, it's been going on for a while. Okay, here we go. Mister Hushar just said no. This that we. This has not been attempted before. You have to realize we're on the midst of the next Great Depression. This was an incredible collapse of the fundamental structure of the U.S. economy in a very short period of time. And we were building the plane yeah, while we, we just, were flying it. Yeah, short period of time? No. You had the warnings in 2006. You didn't really do... I mean, Q, even if you think QE was the best and it really was effective, warnings in 2006, QE wasn't announced until December 2008. So short period of time, two years is a short period of time. No, so I mean, again, this demonstrably false. 
Mr. Cohan. William Cohan is a writer and former banker who worked with us during months of reporting the story. Jacoby is speaking now. The idea of lowering interest rates and the idea of quantitative easing was basically pulling out all the stops to make it cheaper to borrow. Now over to Mr. Cohan. Basically, by making money so inexpensive, by suddenly it being abundant and cheap and easy to get, they flooded the zone with capital. James Jacoby, easy money. Cohan, easy money. Trillions of dollars of easy money. The greatest experiment in easy money in history. Yet, how do we reconcile this easy money with the fact that we just had a global financial crisis? Right? The Federal Reserve said in late 2008, after all of their crisis activities escalated after Lehman Brothers and AIG, that they had created an abundance of reserve. In fact, that's the whole point behind IOER. They did reverse repos in September 2008 because they thought we have too much money in the system because the federal funds rate continues to be below our target. Abundance of reserve as the entire system continues to melt down. And when was the worst part for the global economy? They, they, they make it sound almost like it's, 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 um, it's completely benign. You know, the economy started to collapse as if the economy itself started to collapse. No, the economy was forced to collapse by this financial crisis. The worst parts of the, the for the economy began in October 2008, October, November, December 2008, January, February, March 2009. Look at the employment data for those six months. It's the worst possible since the Great Depression. Are we supposed to believe that was subprime mortgage or that's just the economy sort of falling apart? No, these things are all linked together. The Fed says as the worst economic condition since the 1930s, we've got an abundance of reserve. There's easy money. It's cheap money. How do you reconcile all these things together? You don't. You do it only by sticking with this, this myth that you just accept what these people say. These people tell you that they flooded the world with easy money when all the evidence shows conclusively, obviously, and evidently that wasn't true. And the only problem is nobody will look. Nobody will go and look and examine the data and details and say, these people have it, either have it all wrong because they're crazy, <laughs> they have it all wrong because their worldview is so outdated, which is what we believe, or they really are trying to crash the system, which, I mean, the conspiracy theories, you can, you can see why they, they proliferate and they, con they continue because these things, you know, nobody asks these questions. Well, there is a avenue, a place where this money may have gone, Jeff. It may have not gone to employment or anything like that or the economy, but it may have gone to stocks. Jacoby, sure. all that easy money sparked a rally in the stock market. Richard Fisher, yes. It validated what we thought would happen. That's what we thought would happen. When you drive interest rates down all the way out, it forces investors into taking bigger steps on the risk spectrum. Cheap money is the fuel for a financial speculator and for a financial investor. Jacoby. But that's the thing. And we've heard this ever since the beginning. And I yep. again, part of this is true. The Fed definitely has driven the stock market, but it's not from easy money. Now, I challenge anybody who says that it is, you draw me the diagram. You show me on, on bank balance sheets how bank reserves get to stocks. Where is Draw a line between the, what the Fed's balance sheet is and the stock market. You can't because you can't find bank reserves in the stock market because they're not there. They don't go there. 
There are no equities on bank balance sheets. They're not using bank reserves to buy equities. But yet that myth, even though, again, demonstrably false, the myth persists because they don't understand what's really going on here is psychology. People in this the financial services business, all they want to do is buy stocks. I mean, forget about passive investing. Fund managers, pension managers, portfolio managers, they want to buy stocks because it, it increases their fees. So all they're looking for is for somebody to give them cover when a shaky client or an angry client calls and says, why are you buying stocks or why are you buying junk bonds in April 2020? Why are you buying these things? The fund manager wants to say or the portfolio manager wants to be able to tell his client, oh, don't worry about it. The Fed has flooded the world with cheap money. It's a slogan. It's not actual money. That is how you explain the stock market because it's, it's catnip to cats who, are, who want to hear this from the Fed. They want to have cover for their clients to say, oh, don't worry. We can buy now because Jay Powell says it's okay or Ben Bernanke says it's okay. Don't you see the Fed's balance sheet? It's exploded. There's easy money everywhere. Well, do you have any of that easy? No, I don't have it, but it's, there's easy money everywhere because everybody says so. So the, the, the link between the Federal Reserve and the stock market is, is psychological. Even as Dick, Dick Richard Fisher inadvertently admits here, they expected it because there is a relationship there, but it's not one of easy money and it's not one of lower interest rates or anything like that. And besides the stock market's tendency is to go up. It went up during the long depression of the 19th century in the United States. It went up during the Great Depression in the 20th century. After, after the trough. Yeah. It, they, yes. the stock, and now during our silent depression of the 21st de century, the stock market's going up. Yeah, it goes up. Plus, you, have, you know, on top of that, you almost have unlimited bidding from passive investors who yeah, just they pour everything other. into index funds. And, you know, what happens to the indexes? I mean, it, there's every reason why stocks go up that has nothing to do with monetary policy, except when you realize how the financial services industry works, which is a, which is on an, a doctrine of hear no evil, see, see no evil. Hopefully, Jay Powell has has uh, bank reserves. Jacoby, what Fisher and other former Fed insiders told me is that the stock market rally was no accident. By design, the Fed's QE program effectively lowered long-term interest rates, no, I mean, making again, safer investments. It's, it's, just, it's just not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we well, did yeah, a whole episode on this. And, you know, that's, that's why I say I have nothing but tremendous sympathy for the person on the street, you know, John Q. Public, because, they, I mean, no, they don't know this. They don't know any of these things. They're taking, they're taking a, 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 you know, a reputable documentary, uh, documentary producer like Frontline. They're taking their word for it because they assume the people at Frontline have done their homework. And the fact that, you know, financial media is exactly the same way. We take people's word for it because we're assuming they've done their homework. But when their homework consists of, well, let's call up the people who did these things and let them tell us how they did. Well, okay, yeah, I mean, you want to do that. You want to get their opinion. But then don't you need to check on what they just told you? If a central banker says we've done a really good job because we lowered interest rates, shouldn't you go to a chart and say, okay, let's see if that was actually true? Because all you need to do is go to a chart and see, well, wait a minute, that's not true. So, you know, why wasn't any of that done here? And, and I think again, I have sympathy and I have some understanding for it because nobody knows you should. Again, the idea here is that you don't. It's not that you don't fight the Fed. You don't question the Fed. 
we don't question what they do. We just take their word for it because this is really complicated stuff, and we don't really know that we should do. We should be asking these questions. But it's it again. All you have to do is just look. It's demonstrably false. The Fed's QE program. Oh, I don't want to say that again. Making <laughs> yes, safe and sa making safer investments like bonds less attractive and riskier assets like stocks more attractive. It was hard to argue with the results. Stock again, prices kept even going that, up. Another one, demonstrably false, right? Because what has happened to interest rates since then? Well, we're making making safe assets less attractive, but yet the market has to the market they've become more attractive. Yeah. Again, the interest rate fell. Why are safe liquid assets? in such high demand this far away after so many QEs and so many trillions in bank reserve. It's another contradiction that requires some level of investigation at the very least, at the very minimum. Let's see what Mohammed El Aryan has to say about it. Quote, don't fight the Fed. <laughs> the Fed is the one institution that has a printing press in the basement and there's no limits to how much it can use. This is what makes the Fed such an influential player in the marketplace. Jacoby, El Arian's firm helped advise the Fed on its QE experiment. He so, told <laughs> wait, I mean, <laughs> so even when they're interviewing someone who sounds like they're an independent third party, oh, by the way, he helped advise the Fed putting together QE. So he has every incentive to tell you that hey, QE worked really well, right? I mean. That's that right. You know, I'm starting to get suspicious the about their, the intentions here. He told me the expectation was that the low interest rates in QE would have a strong knock-on effect on the wider economy, El Arian. That was the theory. In practice, the Fed was very successful in terms of moving asset prices. It was much less successful in moving the economy. And the result of that is that we got the largest disconnect ever between Main Street and Wall Street, there between the economy and finance. So let's put these two things together, right? Let's explain how that could be. If there's too much money, how did the too much money only go into stocks? Um, no. And the only way you can arrive at a successful conclusion that explains and get Sherlock Holmes here when you eliminate all other possibilities, the remaining possibility, no matter how improbable it may seem to you, is the, is, the, is the only answer here. The only way you can explain all these things is to understand from the very beginning, the Fed does not have a printing press. They did not pour trillions of dollars into the real economy. There never was easy money to begin with. And that the Fed is running, I will agree, they're running one of the biggest experiments in history, but it's not a monetary experiment by any means. It's, an, it's a psychological experiment. Narrative that's game. why we look at the, the areas that are most susceptible to psychological manipulation have done extremely well, whereas in the real economy where psychological manipulation doesn't buy your gas or uh, fill up your, your grocery cart, obviously they, when you need actual money, psychological manipulation isn't going to do you any good. So where it's easy to manipulate psychologically, yes, Zoom, great job, Fed. Where it's impossible for that to have any type of success whatsoever, no wonder we have this disconnect between asset prices and reality. Because what we're talking about isn't real. We're talking about a bunch of stuff that should be screaming to you, we're missing something, something's not right here. And what we're missing is right where the Fed's, you know, it's it's the the, the, where the Fed's building should, or the, this printing press in the basement, right where that should be, that's what the thing we keep coming back to missing. Jacoby, 
At the Fed, Andrew Hushar was disappointing by, disappointed by what he was seeing. Hushar, I have great respect for the Fed. I never question, and to this day, will, I will never question the intention. <laughs> it's a religion. You're not what, allowed to. <laughs> what I question, rather, is whether their tools are able to help the American people in the way that they believe. I came out of QE1 100% believing that it was necessary because we had actually helped to stabilize the economy, but wondering if there wasn't a fundamental problem with the approach and the tools of the Fed working through Wall Street banks and in so doing were disproportionately benefiting the wrong people, the people who didn't really need the help, Jacoby. So basically what you're saying is that you were seeing in practice something very different than what was supposed to happen theoretically. Hushar, yes, I saw that Wall Street is a private sector actor and Wall Street has its own interests and Wall Street can do what Wall Street wants. And the Fed was on some level at the mercy of the Wall Street. Now let's explore that for a minute here mm. because that's actual, actually some truth. But why is it that way? Why is it this, you know, and there's, there's, there's another myth or misconception, demonstrably false lie here, too. The last 14 years have not been good to the banking system. I know that people don't believe that. They think that it's been high times on Wall Street and that you know, these fat cat bankers have been living it up. Well, yes, yeah, some at the top of the banks have. But if you look at the way the banking system has gone over the last 14 years since the breakdown in the monetary system, the real monetary system that the Fed couldn't fix, balance sheets have been sideways to lower to maybe slightly higher yep and and i'm talking absolute terms in mm -hmm. in, in we live in a non-linear world these banks should be enormously bigger so it's been very difficult banking wise on wall street because the monetary breakdown has forced a complete reorientation now that's the problem and you need to lay that at the doorstep of the fed too the reason why it seems like wall street quote unquote is privileged it's actually lombard street not wall street why the, these global banks have been privileged is because that's where all the money comes from. And the Fed knows this. That's why the Fed has tried to, quote unquote, bail out Wall Street and been unsuccessful at doing it, because the money comes from the banks. The banks create money. And this is why the Fed got into this whole psychology business to begin with. Because if you're a central bank or you're trying to be a central bank and you stop and you say, well, I can't do money anymore. The banking system evolved so much that, I mean, I don't even know what the hell these guys are doing anymore. And they're doing it outside the U.S. to begin with. All in dollars doesn't matter. Banks are money outside the U.S. What do I do as the Federal Reserve? Well, I make people believe I do money, and then I'll just try to manage these banks and hope that it all works out. If people believe I'm managing the banks and let the banks carry out the monetary details, it kind of sort of sounds like I have monetary policy, but it's really psychology. And that's really how you explain all of these things. So the Fed the Fed didn't let everybody down by bailing out Wall Street. The Fed was doing what it was thought it needed to do, which is to give Wall Street a little boost of psychology so that Wall Street would go back to printing money. That's where the printing press is. The printing press is not in the Federal Reserve basement. It's in the basement of all these banks on Lombard Street in London. These global euro dollar, they create the money. And so the Fed's psychology in many ways, yes, it was meant for the stock market, but it was also meant for Jamie Dimon and all his peers at the global banks to say, look, be happy we're doing something. And that's, that's, that's kind of where it really gets ridiculous because the Fed is trying to manipulate the banks who do money psychologically 
when the banks who do do money have just realized the monetary system is broken in a way the Fed can't possibly fix. So of course the psychological manipulation is going to fail at the bank level because they do the money, they know what's going on. And so in a lot of ways, this is just completely, it's ridiculous and it's absurd because the Federal Reserve having left itself outside the monetary system so long, that's the only options they had available to them. Well, what are your options in 2008? Well, we can we can try these absurd experiments that we know probably won't work because we don't really have any other. Let's try QE. I mean, we know it didn't work in Japan. We know conclusively it didn't work in Japan, but what else are we going to do here? Maybe it'll work on the American public. Well, now we're, and then another re- way we could measure that banks were not doing so well is to compare their stock market price relative to the rest of the stock market. So they've actually been losing market share. They haven't been rising as much as the rest of the stock market. So despite easy money, way... well, how is the easy money not benefiting the bank stock price, right? And yes. that's, you know, there's, when I say demonstrably false, it's easy to demonstrate to all these falsehoods. And now we segue to QE2, which raises lots and lots of questions, Jeff. Here, Jacoby speaking now. Hushar and others inside the Fed had been counting on Congress to step in and help oh, no, correct austerity. the imbalance, target more money to Main Street and the wider economy. Remember, we were just complaining that Wall Street was getting all the money. And so Hushar and others inside the Fed say, hey, Congress, you do... The economy. But this, you know, again, here already. Why are we wanting? Why do we want banks to to increase the level of credit? I mean, again, if Wall Street banks are increasing the level of credit, where is that credit going? Yeah. Main Street and the rest of the economy, right? I mean, that's what happened before two thousand seven. Well, so the- if if we're counting on Congress to step in to to bring money to the mainstream of the economy, we already know QE didn't work because Quite. if it had Quite. worked there would be money and credit in the mainstream, the real economy. So again, all you got to do is just think about this for a couple seconds and, and it just falls apart like like wet tissue paper. Well, Hushar and other insiders at the Fed redirected that question and placed it on Congress, but not yep. just Congress overall, a very specific party. Specifically, Jacoby says here, Tea Party supporters put oh, Republicans in All charge right. of the House. Now I understand. Deeming prospects goes. for Congress and the White House to work together to stimulate the economy. The Fed was on its own. Here's a question. Was it palatable that the Fed was sort of the only game in town here? Fisher, yes. The fact was that we were carrying the load all by ourselves. Jacoby. The day after the midterm elections, November 2010, the Fed announced that it would do another round of quantitative easing, not just to stabilize the economy, but to boost it. Fed Chairman Bernanke promoted the plan, writing that it would create a virtuous circle with lower mortgage rates, making housing more affordable and the the higher stock prices boosting consumer wealth. None of which happened. I mean, November 2010, a couple points here. Yeah. If you got to do more QE more than once, it didn't work because it's quantitative easing, right? It, the name basically says we know the right num- we know the right amount of easing to do. Now, if you got to do it again, then you were mistaken the first part, first time. So why are we even listening to you the second time? That's number one. Number two, November two thousand ten, the Fed was not the only game in town. The Tea Party was not a, a political influence at that point, because does anybody not remember the ARRA? 
In 2010, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the government's, you know, Obama's spending bill was still being dispersed widely throughout the economy. And their complaint was that it wasn't being continued, which again goes back to why do you have to continue doing government spending like QE if these things are effective at stimulating the economy? At some point, you got to step back and say, here it is in 2010. We're two years, almost two years away from the end of the recession, at least a year and a half. Why are we still talking about having to do more? These things must not have worked, at least in the way that they were supposed to. Have. And it wasn't just the Fed. Because if you remember everybody's inflationary, hyperinflationary, easy money complaints in 2009, they were as much focused on the reckless federal government spending as they were the Fed printing money. And yet none of that stuff ever happens. Why? Why are we keep going through these things? Why do they keep ending up in the same way? It's because we're not asking the right questions. Or in a lot of cases, as this Frontline episode apparently decides is is, is you know, accidentally illuminating, they don't even know what questions to ask. And they're not even asking the right people. A couple of quick points. President Obama had his autobiography come out recently, his third one, if I'm counting correctly. And in it, he specifically says uh, that previous, that he wanted to make sure that this was a New Deal size, that it was appropriately sized. So Obama, in his autobiography, was happy with the amount of spending that was being done, as, and they co compared it to the New Deal to help yeah. rescue the economy. Well, you know, most so, economists at the time agreed that it was sufficient. And you know, Paul Krugman, to his credit, is the only one who's basically the only one who said, "No, it's not near big enough." He's the one who said that, which is <laughs> which is sort of mind-bending in itself. But by yeah, yeah by, right, by and yeah. large, most economists said this percentage of GDP and government spending will do this much in economic yeah. in economic growth, and they all thought it was terrific. My second point here, it comes out here like the Fed saw the results of the midterm elections, saw that a bunch of ravenous Visgoths and Huns were elected and that austerity was going to take over. And then they announced QE2 when, no, they announced QE2 in late August. They, you know, announced it. Wink. Yes. Ben Bernanke's eyes, they needed a Visine. He got sponsorship by Visine after so, the right? winking at as we that talked, speech. Yeah, as we talked about before, the 30-year Treasury bond, the yield started to rise, not fall, rise, as soon as Bernanke showed up at Jackson Hole and said, we're ready to do QE2. Now, he didn't say those words, but everybody knew it. In fact, go go read the news articles from August of 2010. They all say yeah. the same thing. Yes. Bernanke says QE2 is coming because that's what he intended. And once again, we see the bond yields rise, not fall, because for at least, what was it, four, five, six months there, maybe seven months to August, the bond market said maybe second dose of QE could work until we got to 2011, which things, everything fell apart, not because of austerity, because there would never was easy money. There was never any money whatsoever because the banking system, the Fed, as much as everybody, think, everybody thinks the Fed bailed out Wall Street, banks were, their balance sheets were fatally wounded and they were never, ever repaired. We now turn to Sarah Bloom Raskin, Federal Reserve Board of Governors for four years up through 2014. Quote, so many of those tools had not been tried before. They were definitely break the glass kind of tools. What are we going to do in order to restart the economy here? Continuing with Ms. Raskin. So 
my thinking was that we still had an economy that was far from its potential because we're talking about QE2. As QE began, it showed a great promise. We started to see that the people's sense of economic well-being was ticking up somewhat. People were finding jobs. People were finding homes. The foreclosure rate was had slowed. So there was a sense that something was working. And for that reason, it was, in my mind, worth supporting. Jacoby. But outside the Fed, some were saying that the costs of quantitative easing might already outweigh the benefits. Mr. Joseph Stiglitz, famous <laughs> economist. A lot of talk about quantitative easing, QE2. The likelihood that that will have a significant effect is close to zero. Stiglitz, the main thing I was concerned about was that the way they were trying to revive the economy was kind of a trickle-down economics. The way quantitative easing works is that it's lowering of interest rates. That no. leads stocks to go up. And so who owns stocks? It's the people in the top, not just the top 10%, 1%, one-tenth of 1%. And so it increases enormously wealth inequality. We had increasing inequality really since the late 1970s. And this was putting that on steroids. So the immediate objective of saving the banking system was achieved. But the broader object objective, which was helping the economy recover quickly in a robust way, in a way with shared prosperity, total failure. Jacobi. Yeah, and he's right about that, but not yes. why, right? Because right. the economy never came back. That's where the inequality issue comes into it, is that when you have a legitimate legitimate economic boom or legitimate expansion, that's what limits inequality because it's, it is expansion which drives the lower parts of the lower parts of the income tiers upward. You have opportunity. You have all sorts of, of, of you know, the virtuous circle Ben Bernanke was was looking for out of QE2. It's lack of economic growth that drive, that has driven inequality and the Fed's psychological impact coming out only in stocks. That seems to be that seems to have made it worse. But the issue isn't necessarily the stock market. The issue is the economy, the lack of economic growth. And how do we tie that back to what the Federal Reserve actually did or more importantly, what the Federal Reserve did not do, which is easy money? The Fed, the monetary system, the entire global economy was screaming for a monetary answer that the Federal Reserve didn't have to give. And that's really the issue. It's lack of money, lack of monetary resources that has caused a drag on economic growth. That's where the, this economic inequality comes from. And these people aren't even talking about that. They're all saying the Fed was successful in at least solving the banking crisis because they think it was a banking crisis. When even, it, even if you look at it in terms of the banking system, you could see that it wasn't fixed. The banks have not grown. They have not solved the problem. And it's really the reason is because they're so damn worried about liquidity all the time. It's a monetary problem that pre-exists or pre-exists or uh, under, that, that's underlying all of these things. And it's, and you know, but yet easy money, why doesn't it work? Well, Maybe it wasn't ever easy money. That's that's the thing nobody wants to get that's at. The, it's the it's and it sounds like such a that's stupid, the leap of faith. small thing, right? It's like, well, you keep saying problem, 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 easy money, problem, 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 easy. Well, maybe it wasn't easy money. Back to your let's, Sherlock let's Holmes quote. Let's just ask that one question. You know that Sherlock Holmes quote is an excellent one because it involves believing the un unbelievable it's hard to believe can this possibly be ca the case yes because everything else has been eliminated easy money 
was not easy money. It was our implicit assumption. Okay, enough about my fandom about <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Back to Mr. Jacoby asking Miss Raskin about inequality. Was that even part of the discussion at the time in the boardroom, whether there was any risk of exacerbating wealth inequality? Miss Raskin. There were strands of that, I recall. No, These kinds of costs were considered speculative because, again, the tools hadn't been used before. So there wasn't a clear sense as to what the impact would be. There was some discussion of it, but nothing definitive. You know, one of the most relevant discussions wasn't really about inequality, but it was similar to that. And I can't remember exactly when it took place. I believe it was around QE2, where they were talking about how they expected QE2 to um, devalue the dollar. And their their argument was somewhat similar in that, well, yeah, we're, we're essentially, you know, we're asking the rest of the world to, to absorb the pain yeah, yeah. of a lower dollar, but we're doing that because we expect that the real economic recovery and growth that results from a lower dollar will then will more than compensate their short run pain. And that's, you know, it's the kind of the same argument where they're saying, well, yeah, we're going to exacerbate inequality a little bit here in the short run because we expect, and this is Stiglitz's argument, we expect that it'll trickle down to everybody else over time. And so in that kind of same way, you could say, well, Stiglitz, wasn't he right? Except again, we get back to, well, why didn't the dollar go down and the rest of the world have to absorb the devalued dollar in order to create the recovery? Because they were saying around QE2, they expected a large measure of economic growth in terms of GDP to come from the U.S. exports. They were expecting a lower U.S. dollar would drive a lot of this recovery mechanics and that a recovery in the U.S. would therefore lead to a recovery in the rest of the world. They were they, maybe you can call that speculative in a sense, but it really wasn't because, again, the, the dollar never went down. <laughs> it didn't start. Yes, stocks went up, but this is not a it's not really a speculative experiment so much as it is a bunch of bad assumptions thrown together because they were not prepared for all of this. Mr. Jacoby, you were still working in this building when the second round of quantitative easing happened. What was your reaction to it when it happened? Andrew Hushar, I was not surprised by the announcement, but I was incredibly demoralized. What I was seeing outside the Fed was rising demands from Wall Street that the Fed continue its stimulus. The idea that the sky was going to fall if the Fed didn't continue to print money and give it to Wall Street banks. And yet nobody was giving a coherent explanation as to how the Fed was showering trillions of dollars onto Wall Street banks was actually directly benefiting the average American. And I'll tell so this you this is essentially why. a political hatchet job, right? And so, you know, that's again another demonstrably and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna certainly not gonna hear and sit and, and justify Wall Street by any means. But let's not pretend that 2010 and QE2 just showed up out of nowhere or that it was entirely the result of Wall Street bitching about needing more money. That wasn't the case at all. You and I both know that. And we talked about this many times. 2010 was a watershed. And it had nothing to do with inequality or any of this other stuff. We had any number of warning signs in the monetary system in 2010 as QE1 was going ongoing that said, this system is not fixed. There are any number of problems wrong. And let's talk about just the real economy in 2010. Mohammed El Arian himself conjured the term new normal in 2010 because he was saying, there's something wrong with the recovery here. 
And so the Fed didn't just say, I'm going to throw some money at Wall Street because they're my buddies and I want them to do well. The Fed was in a really tough spot because it looked like, oh, my, there's all this stuff going on in the monitor. I mean, there's a flash crash in stocks, May 6, 2010. There's all sorts of stuff in the repo market. It wasn't about Greece and Europe. There was a dollar shortage developing in 2010, and it was causing all sorts of you know, bad stuff going on in the global economy. The recovery didn't seem to be igniting the way it should. And the Fed was like, Let's, what are we going to do? Let's try QE again because they didn't know what else to do. So it wasn't this wasn't about, you know, uh, pre- privileged Wall Street begging for, you know, uh, free money, free, easy money. This was the fact that QE1 didn't work and that the ever, the narrative about 2008 is completely wrong because that the lingering after facts of the crisis have stuck with us time and time again all the way these 14 years. QE2 was a response to the fact that that 2008 was not a one-off event. Well, 2008 was not a one-off event. The European sovereign debt crisis was next. Now, in this report that's completely skipped over, I like to refer to it as the second once-in-four-generations crisis within four years. Uh, but that was <laughs> completely... Thank you. That was completely no, but, skipped now, you, over. You, you can understand. You can. I can start to see what they're where they're going with this. Is that they don't care about that. This is all about let's blame the Fed for wealth inequality, and I that's so. that's really the whole point here. And that's the reason why probably they're not asking legitimate questions about all about the Federal Reserve and what it does, because if you follow along with what we're saying, you don't blame the Fed for wealth inequality, at least not for the printing money and pushing stocks up and that kind of thing. You blame the Fed for an entirely different reason, which I don't think most people are ready to do, especially in the political arena. What we're saying is that the Fed dropped the ball, not not in 2008, but in 1955. And that's that's a much harder case to make, even though there's tremendous amounts. It's, again, demonstrable evidence. Uh, we've, we've, we've uncovered so many, and we've, we've brought to you all so many transcripts and statements and monetary officials like Robert Russo in 1980. I mean, it, there's a history behind this that's so large and so different, it's very hard for people to accept it. Again, it, it explains why when we say there was no easy money, why there was no easy money. And so the, the problem with the Federal Reserve is not that their printing press in the basement has been overused, but that that printing press got moved out of the basement 70 years ago and put into Lomb- banks in Lombard Street. And that's an entirely different story, even though it sort of dovetails into this discussion where we want to blame Wall Street for wealth inequality when the fact is Wall Street has suffered not as much as people in the real economy, but it has been a bad 15-year stretch for Wall Street. And that's the problem. As I said a lot you know, over previous years, if you want growth and inflation, I said this a lot in 2017, you want actual inflation, a real chance of inflation and recovery, then Goldman Sachs needs to make more money in its bond buying business. And that just, you know, people can't absorb that kind of a thing because they think that's just ridiculous and illegitimate. But that's the way the system is. The system was set up so that we have, we need credit growth in order to drive economic growth. Now, I'm not saying that that's the way I would prefer things, and I'm not cheerleading for Wall Street in that way of doing things. What I'm telling you is that's the way it is, and that's the way it's been for a long time. So there are really only two options. One option is we get banks expanding their balance sheets again, which I don't think most people want, or we do something completely radically different. And those are really the only two choices. The Fed's choice was to try to restart the same way of doing things using 
puppet shows and magic tricks and smokes and mirrors, which just doesn't work. There was no easy money. So Frontline skips over the European sovereign debt crisis, QE3 and QE4, not even fathomable. And here we go with Mr. Jacoby. The Fed would keep the money flowing under successive rounds of quantitative easing, injecting more than $2 trillion into the financial system. And by 2013, unemployment was continuing to fall, and the Fed saw signs that its policies were having a positive impact on the economy. Fed Chairman Bernanke signaled that the easy money might start to taper off. May 21st. 2013 in Congress, Ben Bernanke said something. Yeah, here we go. Tape but tantrum. he did not <laughs> say Mohammed El Arians jumps in now. I was on the trade floor. I remember Chairman Bernanke saying that he would taper. First, we had to figure out what does taper mean? And the minute people realized what taper meant, what, what, which is what the Fed would step back from buying all these securities. And even though the Fed has said it's going to be gradual and it's going to be measured, the markets had a massive tantrum. Markets are like little kids. They no. want candy. And the minute that you try to take that candy away, they have a tantrum. And Chairman Bernanke had to go out in a conference in Boston and say, no, 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 we're not tapering. Yeah, we've covered That's the, the taper. We've covered the taper tantrum numerous times before. We know it's not taper. It wasn't taper. It wasn't any of those kinds of things. And it didn't last, did it? No. Eventually, bonds, without the Fed buying them, got to be higher prices than they were in 2013, didn't they? I'm talking about before the taper tantrum. So how is it that these things incre increased in price without the Fed buying? Again, questions left unanswered because we're not supposed to ask those questions. We skip over more time, Jeff. Now we're heading towards Mr. Chairman Powell's tenure. What do we skip over, Jeff? We skipped over the fourth crisis the emerging market, another crisis, uh, the upheaval in China, another monetary volcano. We're going to go right over that. And we are now in 2018. Jacoby, the new Fed chair, Jerome Powell, was saying the economy was in a good place, citing historically low unemployment numbers and the fact that concerns about inflation hadn't materialized. Mr. Powell, the U.S. economy is in a good place and we will continue to use our monetary tools to help keep it there. Jacoby, there was a growing debate about whether the Fed should raise interest rates and slow the flow of easy money. For those who were saying, during that period of time, you should have been concerned about other side effects of keeping rates so low. They tell me what the downside of raising rates would have been. Now we have a new uh, character enter, stage right, Neil Kashkari. Oh, Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, President, CEO. Mr. You know, the, the, just a message to the frontline producer. You are allowed to talk to people who don't work at the Fed. It, it is. It, there's no law that says you have to just talk to Fed officials. Just wanted to throw that out there. No, no. I mean, I, you left. Yeah. And in um, fact, if you want to, if you want to discuss the Fed and, and uh, other people, you know, such you know these supposedly dramatic and huge world-changing experience, it would probably be a good idea to talk to people who have nothing to do with the Fed and at least have some idea of how to interpret evidence and things like that, right? I mean, it, just continuing to throw up one Fed official after another, just it, it's intentionally trying to reinforce the easy money message. Now, Kashkari has a, has push, is pushing back against 
hey, you guys were, were dumping all this money on Wall Street. And so he's pushing back and he's saying, we were helping the people. Here's what he says. The Fed has been on a mission. I've been on a mission to put Americans back to work and help them get their wages up, especially for those lowest income Americans. And if it has had some effect on Wall Street, to me, the trade-off is well worth it. If we can put Americans back to work so that they can put food on the table, they can take care of themselves. This is profoundly beneficial to society. And he's playing right into Stiglitz's hands here. And again, most people don't know the economic statistics either, because what they say is, well, the unemployment rate went down, it went down to historic lows, GDP was up. And so it seems like the Fed did a good, I mean, it seems like what Cash Carey is saying was actually true. But as, as, as we show with our charts, you know, when you plot GDP, what you see is that, yes, it's, it's up in absolute terms, but it's not where it should be. In fact, it's something like five, five and a half trillion dollars short of where it was, where it should have been if 2008 had been a recovery or if 2008 had been a recession and QE, QE had actually worked in the way intended and we went back to where potential was. People don't realize that GDP is way, way less than where it quote unquote should have been. And that when Neil says, hey, we're doing it for the people here, you know, it may, well, the unemployment rate says it must, must, be, must be successful yet, but the participation rate says not even close, buddy. And it plays, again, what Stiglitz was saying is, yeah, you're privileged. Wall Street's getting all the benefits, and it's only trickling down a little bit into the labor market, into the regular economy. And that's true. But where Stiglitz goes wrong is he doesn't identify why, because it's not easy money going to Wall Street. There's no money going to Wall Street. There's no money going anywhere. <laughs> and that's really been the problem. The easy money is the thing that's been missing. But yet, for ever since 2007, we're never supposed to question easy money. It's always easy money being poured by the trillions into the financial system or the real economy or whatever. And that's the statement that basically has given cover to everything else that has happened. Every QE, trillions of easy money poured into the real economy. And so we're left, most people are left believing, okay, that's what's happening. Jacoby continues to question Kashkari. One of the things that we have seen in this country is a widening wealth gap. The question is what role, if any, the Fed has played in widening that wealth gap? The response, well, that is a great point and I'm glad you raised it. Most people who make this argument ignore the fact that for many Americans, they don't own a house, they don't own stocks, they don't have a 401k. The most valuable asset they have is their job. So by putting people back to work and helping to boost their wages, we were actually making their most valuable asset more valuable. But again, participation rate shows that they didn't do this. And again, they came up with any number of reasons that justify the fact that this is true. Again, demonstrably false statements. The Fed said, oh, let's lower our star. They said uh, old people are retiring. They said the, the, uh, the uh, labor force itself was too, too, um, too rigid, that Americans Dumb. were lazy, drug addicted. They didn't want to go back. I mean, the Fed blamed the lack of labor market recovery on you and me. Mm. So mm. this guy has mm -hmm. the nerve to sit here and say, oh, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you with your great – I mean – Again, disingenuous, demonstrably false. These people are just covering their own ass because there never was easy money. <laughs> Miss Karen Petro, who is the author of The Engine of Inequality, she says... Despite... Wait a minute, did she work at the Fed too? 
or is I don't this the first so. time we, we go outside? <laughs> I, I don't believe so. Yes, I think oh, she's wow. an author, but she's she's an expert on inequality, and she says, despite the quote rec, I'm sorry, despite the quote record employment, when you break those numbers down, you can see that most people had jobs, and that's great. But the wages and the growth in the economy remained very tepid and very unequal. Here comes Mr. Jacoby again. There's a growing conversation right now about the Fed's role, about whether it's driving wealth inequality, whether it's driving asset prices into dangerous territory that could pop right in our faces, and whether the financial system can withstand that. These are the, there are these seemingly legitimate questions about being in what seems to be uncharted territory. Mr. Kashkari, these questions come from people who are keen Wall Street observers or Wall Street. I never have once heard this line of questioning from a member of Congress that represents a low income or minority district, never once. They come to us and they say, why can't you do more? They never say, oh my gosh, you're just benefiting, benefiting Wall Street, raise interest rates because I want to keep Wall Street in check. They say, help my constituents find work. So that's why I find these questions amusing because I hear them all the time from Wall Street. And these are folks who don't care about what's actually happening on Main Street. I don't hear it from Main Street. I certainly don't hear it from low-income communities. And I've heard all these questions before. Even there, the disconnect, the contradiction, right? <sighs> He's basically saying, I'm helping Main Street, but why in you know a decade later do you still need to help Main Street? Will you somebody please ask and answer that question, demand an answer for that question? Why, after so long, are we looking at the Fed to try to help help all of these poor people find a job when they didn't find a job? We should be focusing on the fact that they didn't find a job. Why didn't they find a job? Where did all of that trouble come from? Well, it can't have come from successful, easy money injections in the real economy, can it? It can't. These things are absolute demonstrable contradictions that say, again, point in the direction of, does the, does the Fed actually do what it says it does? And the answer is unequivocally, no, it does not. But it needs to maintain that illusion, the psychological manipulation, because otherwise it all just falls. I mean, what do you need the Fed in a bunch of puppet shows and magic tricks? You don't. There's no reason, there's no need for it. It's just all a bunch of crap. And once the public realizes that, like a bureaucracy, it's only going to fight and justify for its own existence. There's another, what would we say, another side effect to QE that we're going to address right now. And that comes from the corporate sector, Jacoby. Petro and other critics were concerned that the Fed's low rates and easy money policies were fueling troubling trends on Wall Street and in corporate America. And in one in particular was the amount of corporate borrowing. The Fed had hoped that companies would put all that borrowed money to good use and invest in their workforce and their infrastructure. But in reality, it was playing out differently. Now we go back to Dion Raboon. So it used to be that the Fed would lower interest rates, businesses would then take on more debt, and they would take the debt to hire more workers and build more machines and more factories. Now what happens is the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates, businesses use that to go out and borrow more money. 
but they use that money to buy back stock and invest in technology that will eliminate workers and reduce employee headcounts. They used to again, make- and that's you know, hey, I, I got to interrupt here too. This is Good, another please. one of those things that's demonstrably, demonstrably false, but again, in a, in a very different way than maybe you're expecting, because what he's saying is absolutely true. Companies did borrow money, but why did they borrow money? Why was interest rates so low for companies? It wasn't because the Fed lowered rates. It was because the liquidity environment is so bad, only companies who float liquid bonds are able to borrow. Again, lending down, which is illiquid stuff, illiquid assets. Banks don't want to lend, but they'll buy a liquid bond that they think that they can sell. So already there's a liquidity preference being expressed in corporate borrowing. And there's a further liquidity liquidity preference being expressed in how companies use those borrowed funds. If they were thinking inflation, economy, opportunity, recovery, this QE stuff works, they would have been hiring workers and building new factories. The fact that they're only willing to buy back their shares is another indictment of QE itself. No easy money. In fact, the opposite liquidity preference being ex- expressed by the market for only liquid bonds. And then the borrowers and company, the companies who are borrowing in those liquid bonds are saying, we only want to do stuff like borrow, buy our own shares back because we don't want to put any money into the real economy either because this whole thing doesn't work. There is no easy money. We're only looking at part of the equation and, and taking, taking at face value these statements and trying to apply them to all of this data that doesn't that, that doesn't add up into to, into that explanation it's now two sectors that we have saying qe is not working the banking system and the corporate sector but because it's big wall street and big business you know boogeyman uh we have to ascribe wasn't negative... that what cash carry said right that he impugned their motives right if, if you're from wall street then we can't listen to what you say when not realizing i mean self-awareness much the same is must, same must be true about analyzing QE from the perspective of Minneapolis Fed president, right? Hmm. I mean, he, we can't we can't listen to the Wall Street person tell you about what's going on, but I'm going to tell you about how I'm here to help the children. It's so it's so unbelievably ridiculous. He does sort of defend the corporate sector, actually coming up. But yes, your point stands. Uh, Jacoby mentions that there was numbers were astounding, more than six trillion in corporate buybacks in the decade after the financial crisis. Now we're talking to Sheila Baer, chair of the FDIC. FDIC. I can't fault the company so much because this interest rate environment creates very strong economic incentives to do exactly what they're doing. It's hard to create a new product. It's hard to come up with a new idea for a service. It's hard to build a plant and hire people and run the organization. What does interest rates have to do with any of those things? Are you telling me that without low interest rates, there's no such thing as innovation? There's no such thing as good ideas? There's no good people to hire? I mean, again, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And it's ridiculous on its face, but yet, hey, the head of the FDIC says it must be true. And that's really what we're supposed to believe here. It's a fallacy of authority, which underpins a lot of these things here. When you look, oh, Neil Cash carries the president of the Minneapolis Fed. He must know what he's talking about. Otherwise, he wouldn't be president of the Minneapolis Fed. Well, maybe, but have you ever heard Richard Fisher talk? He was a president of the Federal Reserve, and it's very, very clear the man has trouble tying his own shoes. So fallacy authority underpins, which as you would expect, because in a, in a regime of psychological and emotional manipulation, that's gonna be very important. We can't show you our power. We need you to believe we're powerful, 
So we're going to we're going to do everything we can to cloak what we do in the trappings of power and influence and competency, not the actual competency, but it, we're going to be cloaked in the veneer of competency and influence and power and all these things. That is but it. That, I mean, for... that's, I mean, you, don't you agree? I mean, that statement yeah. interest rates, it's just patently absurd. I'm let I'm I'm letting you do the talking. Yes, <laughs> know, I'm in agreement. Some of these are just, you know, why didn't anybody at Frontline challenge that and say, wait a minute, Miss Bear? That's why we're I understand, doing this show. I understand you're the head of the FDI. You were the head of the FDI. I mean, you have a long, distinguished career, and you obviously have some form of pedigree behind it. But what you're saying is bald face crazy. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. I guess you could interpret what she's saying as that. Yes, that stuff is hard relative to just buying back our stocks, which is much less risky, which is back to your original point. Everyone is saying the environment is too risky. Why? Because there's not enough money. So let's just do the easy thing, not grow our balance sheet as a bank, not invest in plant property and people as a corporation, buy back stocks. That makes logical sense to me. No, but if I mean, you're in this environment, exactly. And let's so take maybe step... that's what she was saying. Maybe, Even, no, yeah. I don't think it was. But all let's right, take a step right, further. Gonna... When was the last time we could legitimately say the U.S. economy was in an economic expansion that we could all agree on was an actual boom? Probably the 1990s, the 90s. right? Yeah. What were interest rates in the 90s? Five, six, four, seven, five, four. You see the federal funds rate six, seven percent. Yeah. I mean, your bond yields above that. Yeah. So we have actual legitimate economic growth during the 1990s where interest rates were so much higher than they are now. So why do we need low interest rates for all of those same things? We don't. It, what she's doing is she's attempting to use this outdated yeah, backward worldview to reverse engineer some way that explains all of these things that actually happened that were never supposed to happen. Right. That's all she's doing. She can't understand there was no easy money. So she's oh, easy money, low interest rates is supposed to, well, there must be that, you know, we need low interest rates in order for factories to be able to be built. When the exact opposite in history has been shown to be the case. Interest rates usually are high and, you know, at least normal. Those are the periods you associate with real, real economic growth, not low interest rates. Low interest rates you associate with really bad economic growth because of a really bad monetary situation. We now transition to the pandemic but we do so via shadow banking and i believe that what's happening here is that shadow banking signifies signals uh systemic fragility that that the monetary system was a bug in, in search of a windshield and that windshield was the pandemic but jeff you tell me if that but interpretation already, is what right, you've again, got again the contradiction if well I, that's with, my interpretation you no, tell know, me if it, that's what they're saying maybe again, i'm wrong if, if we're flooded with money then there's none of this none of this should have been an issue right because well, the shadow banks jeff no it, because well, of them. isn't that the fed's job the fed's job it, what is the feds i mean we're right back to the beginning we keep coming back to the same point because we're forced to what is this mighty powerful federal reserve what the hell does it actually do because if it's an actual central bank, then shadow banks are not, shadow money or not, the Fed's got it covered. And if we have a problem with shadow money, we had a problem with fragile shadow system, and the Fed isn't as powerful. The Fed isn't even a central bank because it can't be. And so we're, we keep dancing around this issue 
because we're not supposed to ask these questions. We're just supposed to just accept at face value. The Fed is a very powerful, all-powerful central bank institution, and there are no other possible choices for you to consider. And yet then all the rest of the stuff happens, which is inconsistent with that idea. As Jacoby, as finance grew, so did the risks. There were also increasing warnings about a key player in all the borrowing going on, little known and unregulated financial companies. Why that are they been... little known? I'm getting... <laughs> I don't know if they're so little known either. They, I mean, no, they are. are. No, no. And that's the are point. They? Why are they so little known? I mean, we've talked about this all the time. Collateral. I guess I see what you mean. They mean, shouldn't be little known, is what I'm trying right. to say. Right. Because we've been told to focus on bank reserves and QE. We've nobody's been examining. Nobody's been seriously examining all the rest of the stuff that matters. And so this stuff is little known. They call it shadow banking. I think it's more appropriately termed shadow money, which is what we use around here, because it's not just about hedge funds and non-banks. It's about the monetary forms they trade back and forth. So, I mean, they're even further. They're, they don't I mean, they're, they're one step further removed from the actual question they should be asking anyway. But that's my, my overall point stands. Here we are in 2021. After we sort of got a glimpse of shadow banks back in 2008, why are they still little known? Because the Fed isn't a central bank. It's not interested in any of these things. And its job, as it sees it, is completely different from what the American public has been led to believe. It has nothing to do with easy money. And also, the interpretation here seems to suggest that the shadow banking, shadow money system grew recently out of yes. nowhere, which... <laughs> Which again is demonstrably off false. by sixty-five years. Yeah, exactly. And so that you know, but if you say that, it doesn't fit into the story, which is an effective Fed, you know, a crisis last year that couldn't have been their fault because I mean, two crises in the in the in a thirteen-year span that aren't their fault. Oh, yeah, this starts to sound a little bit uh, suspect. There were also increasing warnings about a key player in all the borrowings going on, little known and unregulated financial companies that had been flourishing in the easy money economy, oh, known as shadow <laughs> banks. Lev oh, Menand, Lev Menand, economist, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, 2016 to 17. The core problem of the shadow banking system is that it's extremely fragile. Anybody who is an investor in a shadow bank, who has their money in a shadow bank instead of a real bank, is going to have an incentive to withdraw in the face of any uncertainty. So little, ec so little economic shocks that cause asset prices to fall have the potential to trigger runs and panics. And so what we've done is by allowing the shadow banking system to develop is we've inserted a source of instability in our entire economic system that doesn't need to be there and that has the potential to throw us all off course. It's, I think it just developed in the last three or four or five years, Jeff. Yeah, okay. I know. It's, it's as if the, the entire Eurodollar system just showed up in 2016. I think it's after, yeah, yeah. Mr. Jacoby, by the end of March, oh, the pandemic, Jeff, that's where we are now, 2020. Yeah. By the end of March 2020, Congress would also act, passing the largest economic stimulus bill ever, the $2.2 trillion CARES Act. A big portion of the bill, nearly half a trillion dollars, was earmarked to support the Fed's lending programs. I don't think most people are aware that we came this close to a bona fide financial crisis. Mr. Menand. Yeah, 
I think a lot of it is missed for two reasons. One, there was a lot of other stuff going on in the news at the time. The other is that the Federal Reserve did an amazingly good job <laughs> at putting out the flames of the panic. And even though the panic in March 2020 was more severe along many metrics than anything we saw in 2008, the yeah. government's response was more powerful in certain respects. And we're lucky that the government was successful or we could all be living through a true depression. You have As any if we have it, right? I mean, yeah. we've covered that before too. Again, we talked okay. about the Fed changing to market, uh, lend, uh, not mar market of last resort, which is a very different. It's it when it's, it's it's actually a tacit admission that they're no longer a central bank, uh, which is the job of the central bank is to make sure that March 2020 doesn't happen at all. So what they're saying is. Hooray, the Fed stopped a huge crisis from getting worse, which is not the same thing as we stopped the crisis from happening, which is our real job and what everybody expects us to do. And oh, by the way, the fragility you talk about in, this, in the, the shadow system, part of that fragility is because the shadow system actually understands what the Fed actually is. And then one of the reasons why it's so fragile is because everybody realizes the Fed is worthless as a central bank. There is no backstop. So... Yeah, hooray for FRBNY guy admitting to the truth, but then not putting two and two together because that wouldn't be the case in an easy money regime. If there was an easy money regime, these things, even shadow banks, would never be so fragile. It's all about that we keep coming back to that central point. Everybody says easy money and then immediately describes all the ways it's not been easy money, right? And that's, that's what's so frustrating here. Easy money, easy money, easy money, and then I'm going to tell you all these things that happen that are completely, totally inconsistent with easy money. And why can't we put these two little things together? I mean, it's everything over here is screaming, not easy money, real economy, the real history of the last four, no easy money anywhere, two crises in, within memory. And then yet, easy money, easy money, easy money. That's, that's all we ever, trillions of dollars into the real economy. It's just, it's so damn frustrating. We're finishing up here, but uh, dear audience, I didn't quite link. I kind of skipped over it, but as I said earlier, I went right now from shadow banking to pandemic. But in the in the show, I feel like that was the link: shadow banks, fragile system, bug, windshield, the pandemic, because of the shadow banking. That was kind of my sense. But now we're we're moving along. We're into very recent days, and Mr. Jacoby, the producer, continues. But in trying to keep workers employed and companies afloat, the Fed had also used its power to rescue some of the riskiest parts of the financial system, like the junk bond market. Which, I mean, we already got a laugh about that, because if you go back and look, the Fed bought, what, a couple billion in junk bonds? Yeah. I mean, again, psychology, not money. Yes, junk bond spreads fell and portfolio managers were ravenous for junk bond offerings again, because they could call their shaky clients and say, don't worry about it. Jay Powell has promised to support the market. And if the client said, well, how is he actually supporting the market? The portfolio manager would just simply answer, don't worry about it. Jay Powell has promised to support the market. And that's all it's really about. It's all a smoke and mirrors hit job that's supposed to reinforce the message of easy money and effective Federal Reserve. When, again, all the evidence... We just talked about scramble for collateral, breakdown and repo, Jay Powell admitting the short scarcity of treasury, all of these things. 
They don't add up to easy money. They never add up to easy money. They never add up to an effective Federal Reserve. It's and this, near, go ahead, sir. I was just going to say it's consistent all throughout history. You again extend yeah, it back to the Bank of Japan 20 years now and really before that. But the, the 21st century has been a nightmare for central banks. Hmm. Um, ben Hunt of Epsilon Theory has uh, staked out this territory about narrative, the narrative machine. And I was just thinking as you were talking that the central banks supply narrative. It's narrative supply, not money supply as per your junk bond I'm going to steal example. that and start using that because I think that's, that's a really good take on this. It's okay. narrative supply, not money supply. I think that's probably... I'm kicking myself that I didn't come up with No, that. let's put it on a bumper that's sticker. We can sell here. tens of them, tens. That narrative bumper supply. Sticker. That's, that's exactly not money what this supply. is. It's not easy money. It's easy narrative, right? It's narrative supply. It's, it's the absolute perfect way to put it, Emil. Excellent. Great. Thank you. So, Mr. Jacoby, just talking a little bit more about the junk bond market before we wrap up. He asks Miss Sheila Bear. Do you see moral hazard in what just happened? Oh, absolutely, Sheila Bear. I think now the entire business community has had a taste of bailouts, she laughs. And boy, does it, doesn't it work really, really nicely. So I fear that now the Fed stepping in not just to bail out Wall Street, but the entire corporate America is starting to be embedded into people's thinking. People talk about survival of capitalism, but this is the biggest threat to capitalism. Jacoby, this is the second time in 12 years that you and your institution have had to funnel into the financial system trillions of dollars, and there is a sense that the financial markets have an ironclad backstop from the Fed. What, if any, responsibility or accountability does the Fed have for the financial system having been so risky and so vulnerable to a shock? That yeah, was directed. Why didn't they stop and think? The guy just talked about fragility, and fragility has, I mean, fragility is lack of backstop. Again, oh, we're just, we just believe easy money yeah, because right. we believe easy money when we're describing all the ways there can't be easy money. It's just, it's, it's so frustrating and maddening. Well, that, that question... Uh, that was directed to me, me, Neil Kashkari. And here's how he responded. Well, I reject that thesis. I actually don't think it's been the Fed's monetary policy that has led to these vulnerabilities. I think it's been incomplete regulatory policy that has led to these vulnerabilities. <laughs> yeah, don't blame us. We're doing it for the children. <laughs> Final words, Jeff. Final words. Sarah Bloom Raskin. I would imagine people at the Fed are scratching their heads about how they're going to be able to get that faucet calibrated to a lower level when necessary. You know, James Jacoby. And the risk of them turning off the valve right now is what? Easy money. You know, that's what we're talking about. Miss Raskin, the risk of turning that valve off is economic collapse, right? You would see asset values actually drop through the floor in a complete lack of confidence. The Fed, by the way, would not, I can't imagine, turn it off in one move. But when the Fed does move, it's going to want to do it probably quite gradually. And the question is, will they be able to do it in such a way that doesn't create this massive economic dislocation? Final word. Final, Mr. Let me, the yes, final sir. word I have here is how is this not a cult? Because every cult in existence that where the leader puts himself as the leader 
basically to ask each cult member to ask, ask yourself, dear cult member, how will you ever live without me, your cult? Hmm. And here we have the Fed making that say, because of this stupid, you know, psychological manipulation expectations regime, the logical endpoint of that is just what we just said. How will you ever be able to live without me? I am your guiding North Star. I am everything to you. How is this not just a cult? That's and the brilliant. people who are embedded within it, as most people who are indoctrinated into a cult, have no idea they've been indoctrinated into a cult. To them, this all makes perfect sense. The economy cannot possibly live without the Federal Reserve at its complete center, guiding every last piece of it. To you and me, this sounds like batshit crazy, because that's exactly what it is. This is all about psychology and narrative, as you pointed out, narrative supply. There's no easy money anywhere. Jacoby, whatever the Fed does next, the consequences will affect us all. Fade to black. Exactly what you said, Jeff, about it concludes it's Jonestown. like... The guy, they sound like Jonestown, right? If... if if, if I'm going to be taken away by the Americans going back to, you know, I, we're never leaving Guyana, we're all going to drink the Kool-Aid. Well, guess what? These people have all already drank the Kool-Aid. They, they have no idea. Again, I keep coming, easy money, easy money, then all the ways it can't possibly be easy money is what follows right out of their, their, their mouth. It's just, it's, it's, it's so unbelievably cult-like. And again, it's, it's understandable because we've been indoctrinated into this fed mystique from the very beginning especially people my age i came up with you know i grew up became an adult in the 1990s the roaring 90s alan greenspan's briefcase was you know for a while there everybody oh it does he have it in his right hand or his left hand it really was cult-like because we're taught to believe and it's this is absolutely required the federal reserve in order to operate an expectation, or at least to think it can operate an expectations-based policy, has to make you believe in all of these things. And the best, the best way to do that is if it makes you believe that you can't even question anything it does. And so nobody does. Nobody knows they should. We're just allowed to, we're just left to think these people seem to know what they're doing because everybody says so. Jeff, thank you very much for sharing all your thoughts. This was a long episode, but I thought it was probably our best one. And uh, it's important to 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 analyze and and uh, and what what's the word I'm looking for? Just to to provide feedback on the mainstream narrative to our viewers and listeners as to what's being shown out there, even by quote unquote investigative uh, authorities well, yeah, looking trying to get to the bottom of things. And this is one of our common complaints, too, that you and I have shared many times before, is that the quote-unquote critics of the Fed, which these frontline, this frontline documentary would fall under a critic of the Fed, mm -hmm. they all line up on the same side, which is they believe the easy money stuff, too. So they aren't real critics of the Fed, at least not in the way they should be. It's... The real critics of the Fed are like us saying, we've examined what the Fed does, and here we're, tell we're not just going to tell you why it's ineffective. I'm going to tell you what it what it actually is. And the problem is most people have trouble believing it. Yeah, right. The the priest is doing the wrong incantations is the criticism, and we're exactly, saying yes, exactly. Not they, a priest at all. 
they're fact checking their narrative or their uh, their grammar checking their narrative. They're not oh. actually e- examining the narrative itself. Back to your, to your cult point. That was an excellent summary. All right. Thank you, Jeff. That's it for me. Okay, Emil. Take care.